0: everybody, um, time to give the talk that I've been fretting about for weeks. <laughs> I notice that I get to start thinking about it a long time in advance. This is not at all as bad as I thought. <laughs> it never is. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for your attention in advance, your kind attention this is may 1st the anniversary of my mother's death in 1983 and international workers day so a day of celebrating the equal equality of all people let's say and we're here some of us maybe knowing that we're closer to death than we and others are, and some of us not knowing where we are on that arc, and some of us feeling that we're placing ourselves somewhere there. But, you know, this is a a tender world and a vulnerable gathering as we are. That's a little bit what the talk is about. I'm feeling actually fairly happy. So the talk is, has a lot of sorrow in it, but um, I'm not only characterized by that. It was funny to sit down and think, I feel actually pretty good. Here's this talk that's quite kind of about difficulty, and, but I got inspired to write it um, on the airplane. Here I was reading a Smithsonian magazine about an artist named Molly Crabapple. I don't know, some of you may know her work. She's a Puerto Rican Jewish young artist, and she does drawings of um, people in the Middle East, fighters and refugees, and she's a kind of a combat journalist artist, but not a photographer because she says that the process of drawing is slower and more engaged, so she feels like it's not just taking a picture, but she actually is with the person for some time and kind of tracing their outlines. And that was a a way that she has of engaging with the suffering of what is now the worst refugee crisis in history. Twelve million people are displaced. Um, We've read a lot about it, but we don't feel the impact here as much. Now, and Molly uh, herself is a person of uh, very intense character. She used to be a fire eater. Um, and here's something that she said. Jaggedness goes, goads you on. I didn't have the easiest path to making the life that I wanted for myself. But I think the parts of you that are a bit broken are the parts of you that are the most interesting in a lot of ways. They're the part of you that gives the motivation to keep creating and keep fighting. That chip on your shoulder can become a diamond, you know. So has it become a diamond? Is it on its way or if it's still just a chip, maybe? Remember, diamonds are just made out of carbon, so the chips, it's just one uh, texture of life underneath it all. But part of what we're doing here is actually finding a way um, to live with pain or to live with the suffering of the world and the suffering in ourself and the suffering outside and finding the beauty and the wisdom in life uh, within the way it is. You know, it can seem that as we leave our life, we come to this place that is sort of isolated and protected and we're quiet and... You know, we don't rush around, we have all this time. And that's quite a luxury and a privilege, as we were saying in one of our groups, and also in the teacher group saying it's quite an investment of time and money and time away from work for us to be here. Um, not everyone can do that, so we're trying to be good teachers and um, make it worthwhile, but it's also uh, of meaning that we can come together and do this. I was, having, um, I was teaching in Tucson, and I went to this cowboy boot place, this um, custom cowboy boot maker. who's almost He's also like an orthopedic shoe expert, self-taught, because I have a lot of stuff wrong with my feet. They're getting more and more weird. Um, so he was going to make, he's also the least expensive custom cowboy boot maker in the country. <laughs> and he's married to an African-American woman, and they live in this part of Tucson that's really not very safe for people like them. He's, he carries a pistol right here with a handle pointing forward, which I've never seen. So can, and he writes uh, something like, gun control means aiming, <laughs> right? <laughs> 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 so I talked to his wife, Shirley. And she was asking me what I was doing in Tucson. I said I was teaching a retreat. And she just was one of those like, beautifully natural people. She said, oh, wow. She said, it takes people with a lot of heart to go in there and explore like you're doing and teaching. She said, and then what you learn by exploring, you can share what you know. Come out, there's not enough compassion. There's too much greed in this world. Thank you for what you do. I mean, she'd never probably even heard of meditation before. She, I could listen to her all day long how she felt about how people treat her sometimes and stuff. She's like, well, I just let them, you know, I don't take it on. It's not, I just say, have a good day kind of thing. She's a very wise person. So, although we're here in a place that feels protected and stuff, like I also learned before I came that the there's an attempt to put the Joshua tree on the endangered species list and they, all, they look so Dr. Seussian, like they have so much personality and like one of them out there is kind of half of it is dying and the other half is bearing fruit I mean they really like seem like somehow a special kind of species but if they do make it on the list they'll be the first ones that are endangered by climate change um, and that's kind of a political issue because if they get on the endangered species as climate change then that means that something else has to happen about it and we're not living in a way in the Um, harmony of being with nature. Not to say that every indigenous group was um, actually in balance with the planet. That's maybe the global warming. They're trying to give a date to the beginning of it. And some archaeologists imagine that it's when we first figured out how to make fires. (laughs) Um, But I won't go into those technicalities. But still, the... People who lived here on and from the land saw it as a place of abundance and a place of shelter and a place that had, inherent in the way that it naturally is, enough for human beings to live from without bringing anything from the outside. No tankers from China, no plastic, you know. I mean, that's something that we could consider in terms of right livelihood, like where are we on that scale? And I also just would like to acknowledge the people who were here before the um, European invasions and who still continue their way of life and express it through a free museum in Palm Springs that's really interesting with some talk about how um, indigenous people and African Americans both lived together and had common struggles and then have also had some um, splitting from each other. So they haven't really been erased um, I just want to acknowledge that presence of those people. So, today, as the retreat goes deeper, we've um, maybe feel that there are shifts and changes that come about because of the meditation practice. Do you feel something? You feel something's kind of moving, or there's a process of some uh, transformation based on all the work that we're all doing? Like most people will have like some moments either of real joy and or, you know, sorrow and pain that are kind of exclusively from the retreat. (laughs) You can sort of give credit or blame and do both um, to the context and all the work that we're doing here. One thing that I noticed in one of the groups is that there's a sense that, um, of feeling a little bit bound to the breath as if that's kind of the the main place where we need to be aware. And as the retreat goes on, George talked about mindfulness in all postures and the Qigong um, incorporates all different kinds of movements. We're trying to be more inclusive of everything that happens, um, including the movements of the mind and the heart, including all the sensations of the body even if they're not centered on the breath. So it may feel a little bit like um, almost destabilizing again to place your attention in all different kinds of places, but um, you're invited also to notice the movements of mind and not to just to think that you were very distracted. Like the way that our mind normally works is like that, like we're thinking a lot of the time, and now all of a sudden we come here and it's something bad, you know, and becomes another reason to feel like we're doing something wrong when the mind is moving around or picking up this and that or remembering stuff or planning or being creative. and um, So we're invited not to label that exactly as a distraction but it's actually another foundation of mindfulness. I'll come back to that but to let that sink in that what your mind is doing is a foundation of mindfulness. It's not only the breath and the body although the breath and the body are primary and very basic. So when... (coughs) we feel neck pain or we're sleepy or enraged or feel hurt um, or sadness or afraid and sometimes the breath may not feel very interesting as something you know powerful enough to sort of get you away from that stuff then the invitation might be to be with it a little bit as we're gradually expanding our focus to acknowledge the places that our mind and heart go use them as a foundation of mindfulness, place where you, can't, you, you almost feel like you can't do it. Well, even that is a foundation of mindfulness, just to say, like, okay, this is what it's like when I can't do it, when I hate being here. When there's no dinner, there was a small community <laughs> of us t- um, meditating on the absence of dinner this evening, and it was kind of sweet. You could see we were all kind of there waiting and wondering what was going to come out and when, and what happened to all the casserole. <laughs> Did it go? It was the latecomers. comers, um, but you could feel us all actually being with it, being like with ourselves and the situation in a kind of a beautiful way. It was, I actually enjoyed spending time with it. I was counting how many of us are here without any food. Eight, <laughs> and sort of holding that kind of anxiety. And it was good that we—I wasn't the only one—or it might have felt like really pathetic. <laughs> So also in this practice, we're not the only one. The teachers also have what's called the five hindrances. Um, Maybe we even have more hindrances than you guys. I don't know. The basic instruction, as George gave this morning, is to really find the still place, or the place of just uh, being able to feel and be with, like the hurricane of different things. Um, If possible, to find the... sort of be the one who knows, what's going on, be resting in the knowing as much as in the storminess of it. But it's not by resting in the knowing of it that it's not like a refuge, like getting away. It's a way of having some, uh, enough calmness to be able to be with something that's happening that might be jagged or challenging. There are many different ways of working with that. Sometimes it might feel like softening into it or letting it be or Sometimes it's taking a little break from it as a way of gathering our resources to be with it again so that if you start feeling like you're really getting dragged down to um, soften up also on the structure of your practice so you know you're taking care of yourself on a challenging day. This is kind of advice that you'll be getting from the teachers or hearing um, in the groups um, that other people get. Way back in the early time of the tradition, the Buddha encouraged us to watch how the practice is landing on our own mind, like to not just take the instructions as being like, okay, now I have to do it. And there's a certain amount of kind of getting it right and getting aligned with what's being offered. But also it's in making it your own, like the cook, the good cook keeps tasting the sauce. It's not just throwing in a bunch of expensive ingredients and following a recipe. It's like you taste them and you think about the person being served. That's in the Samyutta Nikaya, that the wise cook and the unwise cook, they all have the same ingredients and skill, but it's like looking at the weather of the day and how hungry is everyone and that kind of stuff. To see the sign of your own mind and see how your mind is responding to the practice is an important kind of piece of interactivity and making it personal. So, to go into this about the hindrances a little bit more, the full range of experience isn't all pleasing, you know, and it feels like, at least for myself, the basic desire in my mind is for everything to be pleasing and for the maybe meditation to be a tool in that uh, pursuit. Even it all out and sand it down and have it all feel so workable. But the Buddha never said, um, getting get rid of the hindrances or crush them or even transform them there's a kind of study and understanding of how the mind is working that's really valuable. Because as we can see how the mind builds up, like builds a case against a certain situation, and then the next time you see it, it's like, yeah, they really should like fix that, you know, kind of thing. And then you don't see like the door anymore, you see the need for it to be fixed, or whatever that is. Like that, to watch how your mind is... Getting into that and kind of fabricating stuff is a very important uh, piece of wisdom because once you see how it works, then you see that the thing that it's making is just something made. It's not really, um, it's not as true as that. And you have a little access to dismantling it because you see where the nails are in. We're also invited to see when our mind is in a process that feels more enlightening or more uh, joyous, like just to explore the mind without judgment without clinging to or at least observing how beautiful experiences might lead to clinging and the desire for them to be reproduced and how difficult experiences can start to create some mental waves to prevent it from happening again just starting to understand directly and not in theory to feel uh, what's going on the difference between having a wandering mind or a mind that's hard to pin down and the idea that like I feel so much like a failure as a meditator you know that's a different thing it's kind of an opinion so recently um, I was on a Ayurvedic cleansing diet. I had gained about five pounds because of these problems I've been having in my knee. I can't go to the gym, and it was cold in Boston, and I wasn't feeling that creative, like about going to the swimming pool or stuff, you know. So I just kind of got fatter. (laughs) And then this um, yoga community that I'm loosely affiliated with said, We're going to do our spring cleanse, and there's going to be a Facebook page, and you can even talk about your poops. It'll all be really fun. So I was like, Okay, I'm going to get on that. So I got on it and I'm making all this stuff with spices and beans, and my husband is like, Oh my God, you know, like, are you eating that glop? <laughs> he's said, like, Are you eating that gruel? And it was a week with some time at the end. Like it took a little bit of time to come out of it. And he'd say, When are you moving back in with me? Like, when are we gonna eat together? And I'm like, Well, you can eat my beautiful food, and he's like, No. And I felt like I was in paradise, like my body really cleared out and started to feel good, like eating a lot of vegetables and stuff and a lot of hot tea and doing these long sort of self-massages in the bathroom with warm oil. It was so great, you know, but he wasn't getting the benefits (laughs) of it. So he made up this dinner party where we would go out with all our friends on the exact day when I was allowed to eat, like, whatever. And so we went to Las Brasas and I immediately, like, said, all right, You know, I just had had enough of the pressure, and I caved in, and I had mole, and I had a taco de carnitas, and I had a sofrito, and I (laughs) I did manage to avoid the mixed drinks, which everyone else was enjoying, and I was even saying things like, maybe I'll go on a taco cleanse next time, and and my friends were like, this is the best restaurant in Boston, are they open for lunch? We're coming back here, and stuff, and then the next day, I woke up, and I was like, oh my god, (laughs) this is like horrible, I felt so... Stupid! Like, I should have known, you know, that if I was going to, like, just go out and sort of party down and eat whatever I felt like after being on a regime like that, I wouldn't be, like, in shape for digesting all that stuff. So, the part of, like, really self-critical, you were such a fool, like, you should have seen this coming, you know, of course you know that, and it's even in the cleansing protocol that you're supposed to blah, 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 you know, and... So I decided, all right, well, for this is a good time to meditate. So I went upstairs to my meditation place and I sat and I just started to be with um, how uncomfortable my body felt and just to say, like, all right, I'm going to be with those sensations, not so much with this uh, you're so stupid thing. And by putting the attention on what was really the most fundamental issue I was having, it's like the the selfie part kind of went away and it was like, well... I still don't feel great, but I feel way less worser than I did before because I could kind of feel some tenderness for myself, uh, kind of the pressure I'd been under to try to, you know, join the world again, sort of, and be with my friends and have a good time and not be the one who's just ordering asparagus sort of thing, you know. So the suffering that my mind was putting onto that whole situation was so much the worst painful part of it, Uh, the self-hate. That came, and you know it's often we might make mistakes and we participate to some degree in those mistakes out of our vulnerability, like thinking we know better, well, we didn't. <laughs> or maybe there was something else, like wanting to be loved or wanting to feel connected, that kind of has a trump card over the what your better judgment would have been, you know, and to start to feel some tenderness for that like. Sometimes, how many times have we almost crashed into somebody in the car, you know? And then once in a while, maybe we get in an accident, you know? And it's like, we didn't mean it. We really didn't mean it. And to feel like we understood the causes of how that happened and feel bad is different from hating yourself and beating up on yourself for it. It's different. It still hurts. It's still really painful. But it's a kind of pain that you can learn from because... Just calling yourself a fool or an idiot leads to collapse and saying like, "Well, why should I even try?" Or, you know, it has a lot of other ramifications. So we have a really a ringside seat here in the retreat. Like it's kind of like a laboratory where you can see these things taking place. And the thing is that you're, it's almost like you're working on your car while you're moving in your car. You know what I mean? Like it's actually you that's involved in all of this. Which makes it tricky. That's kind of why they're called, the maybe, often called the hindrances, or the vexations of mind. I think I like that better, the nivarana. Um, When the mind starts to have trouble seeing itself clearly, then it actually has trouble seeing itself clearly, you know. Well, there's a lot of um, tradition behind how to understand these tangles and how to sort of work with them. The sutras have a story uh, often they're all they're all actual stories from situations and some of them are maybe a little bit slightly uh made iconic or something like but there was a brahmin named sangaraka who came to the buddha and he actually practiced a different kind of meditation he practiced it with a hindu mantra and he said like sometimes it's so clear and I can practice with any mantra and I have like a powerful powerful meditation from it and not even the one that I'm used to and then he said sometimes I can't even remember my mantra at all like I can't even practice zero nothing happens why is that and the Buddha said um, well it's just like when a woman or a man is looking to see their own face in a bowl of water which would function as a mirror you know trying to see the true nature of our mind and heart, and who we really are. If the water has uh, colored dye in it, uh, then they won't see an accurate reflection. Or if the water is so hot that it's boiling, they won't be able to see their face. They'll just see the boiling. Or if the water has been sitting in the pot a long time and has algae growing over it, they also won't. Or if there's wind or it's turbulent and on the surface, the surface is broken. They won't be able to see their face. Or if it's polluted and dirty and murky, then it won't be shiny and just like soup or something, you won't see any reflection from that either. And then what the Buddha said is, this is really interesting about what kind of reflection we might be seeing if we were seeing clearly in the water that's pure and still and reflecting and at the right angle. We would see the goodness in ourselves and the goodness in others. Um, But when there's these different conditions of the water, the person can't see the good uh, in themself or for themselves, can't see the good in others or for others, and can't see the goodness that's good for all beings or for everyone, both oneself and others. So that's quite beautiful and also talks to the fundamental nature of who we are, this kind of loving awareness as who we are, the enlightened mind the buddha nature and if um you don't have to think of it as like some you know actual thing that's in there like a box that you're going to dig up from inside yourself but it's actually uh, your deepest nature that is obscured really a lot of the time like maybe even like what's going on right now um do you have a sense of the clarity of your knowing do you have a sense of your heart being open do you have a sense that what you're feeling is enough, uh, good enough. So that when the water is full of dye, or a colored water, um, that's, re- that's a metaphor for uh, the mind that is filled with desire, or, or wanting, or neediness. Feeling like the water that's clear isn't good enough, like it needs to be something more pleasant or more decorated than just water. Um, so some face that we're looking at uh, should be more beautiful than our own face, kind of. So we put color in the water and then we think the color is an enhancement, but in fact it's a uh, sort of di- distraction or a... I used to work with a psychoanalyst and... I have this tendency to really like Buddhist philosophy and stuff, and he would say, well, here's what you always do, Lila, when you teach, you say this, and then what I say is, like, when you suffer, if you're someone who smokes and you think you suffer from a lack of a cigarette, you're actually suffering from wanting the cigarette, not from the lack of the cigarette. That's desire. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I'm telling you that, because (laughs) that was a smart person. But desire in itself, or the feeling that our experience or our being is lacking in some way and needs more decoration or needs something, that needy, needy piece um, is painful. Now I don't want to, we're saying these are foundations of mindfulness, so we're invited to explore what that's like, like how are we relating to ourselves when we feel like somehow fundamentally we're not enough. It doesn't mean that this signal of wanting something Better is in itself a bad thing like we're just talking in a certain like meditation way like to take the desire for something as a signal and it may be that like none of us would be here if it wasn't for desire a desire to understand or a desire to build a better world or a desire to find what is real peace of mind or real dignity or real inclusion for ourselves and for the world like that kind of desire is okay it's especially important even th- in the meditation though not to make it into a kind of ordinary desire that keeps making you feel like it's you know it's not enough like you're looking for the next moment when you're going to be a little bit more enlightened like tomorrow you will be but that's enough <laughs> maybe the important thing is that we need to keep coming back here to this place to the here and now and this experience and this is where the actual understanding will come as through contact with our own real and genuine experience. So desire can pull us to what is good, but it gets out of control and it gets fixated onto things that aren't really going to give us satisfaction. As uh, Herbie Hancock said when he came to give the Norton Lecture at Harvard, the jazz musician, you think it's when you're going to be on a beach with a margarita and a beautiful member of your desired type, uh, gender, <laughs> that's when you're going to be happy, like when it all stops in this big crescendo of pleasure. And he, then he goes on and says, you know, it's not what you have, it's not where you go, it's what you can give, it's the compassion with which you see this world and the way that you can offer a quality of love and safety to each other. He's a pretty wise guy and he's also a Buddhist, so it's easy really to learn from his stuff. He also talks a lot about improvisation and not fitting the mold and playing with other people and playing to make everybody look good, not to make yourself stand out. Makes a better music altogether. So to sort of see that our mind that seeks delight and seeks pleasure, let's not make it a criminal, but um, it may not also be the thing that we want to be happening at all times. Like to be intimate with what's here is a better strategy for deeper happiness. So, someone in one of the groups was saying that they're practicing feeling grateful when they noticed their thoughts. They're like, oh, I'm so happy. I found myself thinking. That's so great. Rather than or the opposite, disappointed, like, oh my God, I've been thinking again. Damn. Back to the breath. You know. <laughs> and the last on desire is like, I think the desire is almost always deeper than what we think is going to satisfy it. And, you know, the, the Rumi says, listen to the dog crying out for its master, kind of a, wanting that love and connection really with the ultimate, with the divine. So anger, when the water's boiling, when you get hot, you can actually feel a heat in anger sometimes, or I guess there's also cold anger. Um, we start to see the mind in terms of we's, me and them, like that is what's wrong, and I when it fixed right now, and we... in the retreat, since we're having kind of a laboratory version of this, it's like... when we find ourselves angry or judgmental, let's talk about just from the things on the outside for now, it's like... there's a way that we sort of feel better than that other person, or better than that situation, or whoever planned this. It's like, if you lift it up to me, I would be able to figure this out, like... but no, it's like this instead. So we often miss that subtle kind of elevation that we put in for ourselves. like what's, what's actually driving the anger might also be the feeling of um, being able to feel consolidated a little bit as a self, like a little safer that I know who I am and I'm like okay and I'm kind of all this trouble in the world and all the imperfection is like something that I, the angry mind kind of immunizes you from in a certain way. Innocently, but good to keep an eye on that. If you find that anger is kind of a big theme in your life and um, sometimes it's good to mentally put it up on the altar next to the Buddha and say like, maybe I came by this for a natural reason, I have good reasons why this is a difficult and dominant emotion for me and let me understand it rather than continually blame myself or justify why I'm so angry, those two. Anger is—it's um, often a really good signal that something needs to change. And it, but it's good not to stay with it. It's try to good to try to see and explore like what could bring a greater peace. Underneath the heading of anger, I want to talk about also a little bit about grief and sorrow and those things, which are processes where it's actually like the cure for the pain is in the pain, which is um, one of the strategies for working with the hindrances in general is to actually let yourself feel the suffering like I was saying about my experiment after the cleanse. The grief you cry out from is your secret cup, says Rumi again. I remember having been on retreats when it would be like everything would seem like so poignant because it's so transitory, you know, like just sitting on the bed in my Room and watching the clouds go by I'd feel like saying like please would you please stop moving just for a second would you stop going away or disappearing like the way you're doing Um, I like these clouds you know there's something kind of very heartbreaking about reality and um, maybe that's what our hearts are made to do is to be able to be broken because we care you know it's not it's not always something to avoid. Like Oscar Wilde is um, one of the greatest humorists of English language and he was gay and he was put in prison when his shallow aristocratic lover turned him in to the police for being gay. Um, his fam- The guy in his family was in love with this sort of really beautiful but really hard-hearted guy and sent him to prison, I think because the family wanted the guy, the other guy to marry somebody or something, I can't remember correctly, uh, marry a woman. And he wrote in beautiful things in prison, but including hearts were made to be broken. And you just got the sense that he would have rather had this love than, than not had it. You know, He'd rather be where he was if it meant that he could love. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And I have a feeling like in myself of having grown out of certain amounts of trauma growing up, that um, being able to feel the fullness of things is a much better way of life. It's more like technicolor, you know, than living in kind of gray and sharp and hating yourself for having feelings that you feel like you shouldn't have. Um, It's worth it, but it's not easy all the time. Wes will probably talk about, in a certain way, how much part of nature we are, but um, for healing with anger, it's often really a good thing to feel like that we're just kind of like a natural person, like our body is part of the earth, like even the water that comes through us doesn't belong to us, the minerals in our bones don't belong to us, and our feelings are just these kind of flashes across, um, who knows what that is, the sensitivity of the heart but there's something humbling about knowing that we're of the earth that takes away the kind of secret pride and blame that's in anger. In fact, to be a human being, um, that word human is related to the word for earth, like humus, you know. So remembering that in a certain way that's all we ever are or will be is kind of children of life, that's all. So anger um, and desire are really powerful hindrances and I could almost uh, stop the talk. Um, I'm going to just name the others and go quickly over them because just to complete the list of five. Sleepiness is the one that's like the pot of water with the algae on it, like it's sort of scummy and gross or sort of like feels good but not really the sleepiness of meditation. Now on one level we're kind of tired people because it seems that life requires us now to be very busy and work like really hard for the same amount of well-being or less well-being like we're constantly falling behind and sort of feeling unsafe with no safety net like so we have to keep trying all the time like there's a lot of outer reasons why we get stressed out not just our own fault. But sloth and torpor also speaks about an attitude of contraction and kind of like not really trying to um, move life along toward what's better, toward a better world. Um, George was talking about making choices, like how important it is to make the choices that we make and to actually make an effort. Uh, Noah, I think, was saying that he was going to speak about effort. Are you still? I don't mean to cage you in previous statements, but maybe. Um, Here's Rebecca Solnit talking about the news that oil companies were hiding stuff about global warming. She goes, I heard many people say that all corporations lie, but the scale of these revelations was greater than any corrupt and dishonest thing a corporation has ever done before. And the dismissive line that it's all corrupt ultimately excuses not doing anything. To accommodate change and uncertainty requires a looser sense of self, a looser sense of partial success, If we just say that corruption is everywhere and evenly distributed, then there's no adequate response, or rather it means no response is required. So it's that type of contraction that says, I can't really do anything about this, that is referred to in sloth and torpor. And that's kind of not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is that a good, heartfelt effort and intention actually makes a difference. It may not make all the difference that's needed, and we may not be able to ultimately... Change everything, but we can certainly change a lot if we try and do it together. Make sure you do your walking meditation. That's the last thing on your sleep- sleepiness thing. <laughs> if you're tired, take a nap, but um, more energy comes from exerting energy. So, anxiety and restlessness is that water that's windy and um, the mind that can't settle down. And it may be that we just come with a lot of agitation and the mind gradually learns to be content. It's good to try to discern and actually get the felt sense softening into the experience of the moment that calms restlessness down a little bit. Like you start to actually taste something rather than sort of going on the surface and looking for whatever the next experience is. It becomes more fulfilling But also um, the anxiety that I might like to speak about just slightly is the anxiety of being afraid to feel things and being afraid of all the difficult feelings that you might have um, learned to not be with. So it's kind of like the more busy we are that we never actually sit down and actually talk to someone and look at them or take the time to really be with stuff. And I think we need to be able to be in sync with each other and with life, so... um, That kind of settling and finding some contentment in just being here is a helpful thing for restlessness. It may be just really enjoying your cup of tea or something like that, but try to find a place where there's some comfort. And this is a place of that kind of anxiety, but about not being able or willing to feel certain things. Um, It often helps to have each other... uh, for this one, either in our life or also in the way that our container here implies that we're all going through this together. Like this afternoon, um, I went for a tiny walk with Howie in between our groups so It was this morning and um, he said to me in the nicest way, are you noodling about your talk? Because he'd seen me scribbling things down for the last few days. So he said, how are you doing? Are you thinking about your talk? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And he said, I do that too. And it just feels better. You're not like the only one. You're not alone with it, sort of. It's just, it starts to feel more natural and forgivable that we have all this stuff. And lastly, doubt. Um, doubt of ourself. Doubt of each other. Doubt of the teachings. Doubt if this is the right time. That is all like a view. Like doubt actually feels like it knows that what you're doing is not correct. You know, it's not really doubt. It's more like, I know this is not going to (laughs) work. Right? (laughs) And contact with the felt sense of experience, like coming back into the present moment is kind of what gets you out of the place where you're listening to Mara all the time. The other thing is just to expect that it's going to come. If even the Buddha was visited by Mara 37 times after he was enlightened, when Mara would come and say, "Um, well, you are enlightened, but... It's such a hard thing, and it takes so much work. Like, if you teach it, nobody's going to want to do this. Like, it was really difficult. You have to sit and let all this stuff come up, and blah, blah, and sit and walk. and uh, uh. They're not going to understand it. Don't teach. Then later on, the Buddha um, was getting older, and Mara came and said, Why don't you just croak? <laughs> you should just die now. You're actually old, and you have a lot of enlightened disciples. They can carry on after you. Why don't you just give it up? I mean, he was bad, to the Buddha, but the Buddha would say, like, I know, you know, I know, I I see your strategy here, like, you're not going to get me, kind of thing, and one thing that's good is to just expect it, like, to say, like, this will happen, you know, I will feel crippled by self-doubt and try to recognize that that's what's happening, not to buy into the whole story of it, like, um, there could be in anything that we're trying to do that's wholesome that will feel doubtful about its value at different times. Um, to keep going is good. The emperor, Marcus Aurelius, would prepare himself every morning and say, I'm sure that I'm going to meet at least one jerk today (laughs) and all the people that I need." And then when that person would come, he would say, oh, there you are, (laughs) kind of thing, in his mind. Um, (laughs) But anyway, something like that, to recognize Mara when Mara's there, to see, like, wow, so so, this uh, emotional force is trying to cripple me. And in some ways... You know, this kind of doubt can be a protector. It can say, like, well, I already know what it's like to live the way I live, you know, and if I try, then I could fail, and then I would even lose even more hope. So why don't I just stay with what I've got? You know, like, I'll I'll protect you by not allowing you to grow, sort of thing. I'm kind of used to this, right? But it ultimately can be really overly confining. So in the end, it's like, we might come in here, like scared and uh, maybe broken in some ways, but often for very good reasons of history or um, society or just part of the broken nature of being a person or being life. You know, like the even the crust of the earth keeps changing and blowing up and shaking and stuff like that. It's all kind of like that. Wherever there are phenomena, there's going to be this kind of imperfection. And the closeness that we have or the ability to be open is um, kind of our greatest refuge, I think. We end up being able to rely on the capacity to let go and let be, which is a different kind of gesture than we're mostly trained. I think this is the Zen story that, you know, the hand that's always closed is deformed, but the hand that's always open is deformed. Like the hand needs to know when to hold and when to let go. And the training in letting go is not one that we receive that often, unless it's usually someone who's mad at us and says, why don't you let it go? Or or, I should be letting this go, that you say to yourself. And usually you say it in that way that it's not going to happen. It has to happen some other way by saying like, well, I'm not ready to let go of this yet. Maybe one day I will be, maybe I can forgive this one day. May I orient myself that way? Or maybe even just say like, I'm not quite ready because the pain is too great. Like that's a place to rest too. Um, different things the I have a friend who's a Tibetan Lama and his daughter is like this I think she's seen her dad like holding the mesmerizing all these people so she's like become this little performer thing and they're trying to teach her performer girl they're teaching her her own uh, cultural dances and stuff but she's growing up outside Seattle so her Tibetan and her English get mixed up because she's learning them at the same time so sometimes she'll start dancing and She'll be waving her sleeves like a Tibetan woman dancing, and then she forgets, and she just puts Mary has a Little Lamb in there instead, you know? (laughs) And it's like, it's just in this stream of who she is and what she's showing. And her dad says, like, she doesn't care. She just plugs in whatever, you know, she's open. She's just letting the singing kind of happen. Um, That's kind of what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be one kind of song that we sing here. So for the last... um, of the talk, I'll read part of a poem by um, this Spanish uh, revolutionary named Miguel Hernández, who lived to be probably, I think, 32 before he died in prison for being against the fascist regime, and he wrote incredibly beautiful and painful poems. Um, this one's called um, I Have Plenty of Heart, or in Spanish Me Sobra El Corazón. I think I'll read, it's not the whole poem, but I'll read part of it. Today I am, I don't know, today all I'm ready for is suffering. Today I have no friends. Today I'm anxious to rip my heart out by the roots and stick it underneath a shoe. It's called having more than enough heart. Hoy estoy sin saber, yo no sé cómo. Hoy estoy para pena solamente. Hoy no tengo amistades, hoy solo tengo ansias de arrancarme de cuajo el corazón y ponerlo bajo un zapato. Or one more from him. Just the beauty of how it can move your heart. Like that's the beauty of him and the beauty of sadness and also the beauty of the heart that can be moved. Whether your heart was moved by that poem or not may not matter. There might be other things. For within the sad garland of these chains within the constant taste of prison guards and firing squads and the precipice lying in wait for me I stand tall, happy and free tall, happy and free, free, free only through love no, there is no prison for me they cannot tie me down, no this world of chains is small for me and it's outside of me who can lock up my smile who can wall in my voice yeah Thank you for your attention tonight. I'll sit a little bit.